Welcome to the Leadership on Demand podcast, presented by the Krauss Center for Leadership and Ethics at the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina, located in historic downtown Charleston. I'm Colonel Tom Clark, Executive Director of the Krauss Center, and we are proud to share an inside look at the training, thinking, and experiences of principal leaders. Since 1842, the Citadel has produced principal leaders in all walks of life, and we look forward to sharing some of what makes the Citadel a strong and unique institution with you today. On this week's episode of Leadership on Demand, we will take a behind-the-scenes look at principal leadership training with special guest Lieutenant Colonel Keith Brace. Lieutenant Colonel Brace is a Teach, Advise, Coach, or TAC officer in the barracks who was recently honored as the Citadel's Employee of the Year. Lieutenant Colonel Brace brings an extraordinary career as an undergraduate at the Citadel as well as a career in the Army to training cadets today. Today's host is Colonel Tom Clark, Executive Director of the Krauss Center for Leadership and Ethics at the Citadel. This podcast was sponsored in part by our friends at Spider Exchange Traded Funds. Thank you for joining today's Leadership on Demand podcast. Let's get started. Lieutenant Colonel Brace, welcome to Leadership on Demand, and thank you for agreeing to share your thoughts with the Citadel family. As we get to know you a little bit better, and then together as we explore this concept of principal leadership. So tell us about yourself. All right. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Um, well, I'll tell you a little bit about who I was growing up. Um, I'm originally from Rockville, Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C. Um, was raised by two, uh, two wonderful parents that uh, both were in the education system. My father was a high school football and baseball coach and uh, had a huge influence on my young life. I was uh, always involved with athletics and those kind of things. Um, in high school, played football, baseball, wrestled. Um, so was always active, you know, uh, never, never took a season off. And I think that uh, went a long way in keeping me out of trouble, but it also started to light that fire for me that uh, uh, I, I was able to uh, follow with my military career. I uh, was also fortunate enough to have a junior ROTC program at my high school, and that opened my eyes to the potential of serving in the Army. Um, and of course, uh, that led to me coming here to the Citadel and I came here on an army ROTC scholarship and, you know, I, I had looked at other schools, uh, had pursued possibly going to West Point, uh, looked at VMI and, uh, then, then a non-military school, but I had made the decision that if I was going to go into the army, I wanted to best prepare myself and a military college seemed like the right way to do that. And at my young age, I looked at West Point and I looked at the Citadel and the Citadel interested me because I considered it more the blue collar school than West Point's white collar school. And that was more who I was. Um, so came here and had an exceptional four years um, during my time here. Made lifelong friends, you know, those that I nobbed with. Uh, I still have a group of six of us that uh, were, were just tight as brothers. How has the school changed since you were here as a cadet? Uh, great question. Obviously, it's changed. But what I always tell people that I talk to, particularly alumni, is that the foundation of this institution is still the same. Uh, we are still producing incredible young men and women. They still get the challenge that you would expect for them to receive from this institution. It is difficult. It's demanding. Um, they are sacrificing in order to receive a, a prize at the end of the, the race. And, um, you know, for, for those that don't think it's tough enough, it, it's certainly tough enough. Uh, in a lot of ways, I consider it tougher than when we went through uh, 
you know, our fourth class system, but it's smarter. It's um, more well-defined and we are teaching leadership that you and I would remember having learned simply by watching and absorbing what you thought was right and what you thought was wrong. But now we've got exceptional leaders here on campus on the faculty and staff that are um, set up in structured ways to actually teach some things to these cadets that they can then go back into the barracks and, and try to utilize. Uh, so that's that leadership laboratory that we talk about. And I just feel like um, it is without a doubt still successful and the school will challenge every cadet in one way or another. And uh, for those looking to pursue the military, th this gives you a great opportunity to, you know, get your feet wet in, in leading and, uh, you know, getting a group of individuals to move in the same direction. You made the most out of your time at the Citadel. Graduated in 91, degree in business administration. Senior year, junior year, you were on junior sword drill. Yeah. Senior year, you're a summer all guard. Um, you are Tango Company commander. Mm -hmm. um, as you reflect back on that senior year in particular, what did you learn about leadership? What did it instill in you? Yeah, it, my track was actually a little bit unusual. Uh, we were rotating our leadership back then like we do now. So I was moved from golf company to Tango Company my junior year, actually, to be the first sergeant in Tango Company. And then I was the one in my class that was actually allowed to stay in that same company. They kept me in Tango Company for a second year to be the commander. Uh, and I'll tell you what, the relationships that I built there in Tango Company uh, were spectacular. And it was a group of people that I otherwise wouldn't have had the opportunity to become friends with or to get to know at the level that I did. And there were leadership challenges like any leadership position here on campus. You know, I had to work. Um, I had to negotiate with my peers. I had to hold a line as far as what was acceptable and what was not. Uh, so it taught me to set standards, to give expectations, and to hold people accountable. And I think at a young age that was important and it was a great skill that I think many of my peers when I got into the Army, they hadn't had to exercise that muscle very much. Um, so I felt ready to do that as I would be dealing with my soldiers, with my NCOs, with my fellow officers in the military. Uh, I felt like I had some experience in that already. Let's talk about your time in the Army. So you commissioned uh, upon graduation, second lieutenant in the Army, uh, infantry officer. Mm -hmm. um, you've got deployments to Bosnia in 1996, deployment to Iraq in, in 2006. Uh, you've got another almost deployment I'll, I'll mention in just a minute to 19, in 1994, but we'll come back to that. Right. And then educationally, you earned a master's in business administration in, uh, from the Citadel in 2002. So mm -hmm. as you reflect holistically back on your, your Army career, what are your takeaways? What, do you, what stands out uh, as the most meaningful parts of that experience? You know, the way you phrased that question, it, it, it threw my mind. I just said every experience was special and different. And I think that's one of the fun things about a military career is there's a lot of variety in those 20 plus years. And um, every experience I had, and I had a, a mentor that once told me that whatever job you're in, do it as well as you can, because not all of them are gonna be your number one choice of position. 
but every one of them is going to give you some sort of skill set that you're going to need as you continue to progress through your career. Um, I started at the 82nd Airborne at Fort Bragg, and that was a great place to cut your teeth. Great NCOs that uh, mentored me and, and got me set off on the right track as a young platoon leader. But it was also a very demanding environment and uh, uh, a testosterone-filled environment that I thrived on. And uh, just jumping out of airplanes, doing the, the infantry missions and those kind of things was spectacular. And uh, for me, it, uh, it really solidified the fact that I was where I was supposed to be. Um, I, I felt like I was cut out for what it was I was doing. Uh, but then as I progressed through my career, I ended up in Germany as a company commander with the 1st Infantry Division. And uh, that was a mechanized infantry unit and just really enjoyed that. I uh, got kind of the best of both worlds, the mechanized fight uh, to get you where you wanted to go. But then at the objective, you would dismount and basically be a light infantry soldier on the ground, which was my preference. I uh, did that, got a second command there in Germany to command a headquarters and headquarters company after my line infantry command. And I just really enjoyed my time there, got to enjoy some travel, uh, started to develop a family. I had two children by the time I left Germany. And uh, so it was just really living life. And, and that's what the military allows you to do. It's, it's a very secure job as long as you're doing well and uh, takes care of you as an individual, but also takes care of families. Uh, and after that, after my command time was when I got stationed here in Charleston. And that was kind of a random selection to uh, be the advisor to the National Guard Battalion here in Charleston. And while I was here doing that was when I came back here to get my master's degree. So that was 10 years into my career. Uh, the opportunity to come back to my alma mater to pursue a master's degree was just a great opportunity. And when, you, when I did that, 10 years into my career, I, I was do, getting that education for myself, not because I had to, but because I wanted to. Uh, you, you asked about, um, you know, my academic status and those kind of things while I was a cadet. As a cadet, my grades were not the best. Uh, I like to say that I majored in Army while I was here at the Citadel. But when I came back from my master's degree, it was a completely different focus. Uh, I was here for the education. Um, I had some life skills under my belt, so I was able to put those to use in getting that degree and uh, excelled academically, did very well. And, you know, it's, it's what I was capable of probably as a cadet, but just didn't put the time to it. So it was rewarding for me uh, in a number of ways. One, to be here at the Citadel and to have a second Citadel diploma hanging on my wall, but also just knowing that I had accomplished something personally that was going to help me with the remainder of my Army career. Because that MBA, uh, you know, as, a, as an upper level leader in the military, uh, you're a manager. And uh, a lot of those same business skills correlate very well into the military. Um, so left that, uh, that duty here in Charleston and moved on to uh, Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, just for a year, and then moved to Fort Carson, Colorado. And it was there that I uh, had my S3 time, or Operations Officer time, and that was with the 361 CAV Regiment, which was a part of 2nd ID, and we deployed to Iraq with that unit. Uh, and I, I had a split, a dual role in that deployment where I was the operations officer for my squadron, but I was also the, the, the MIT team chief, which is a military transition team chief. Um, and that was an ad hoc 
21-man unit that we formed out of our squadron uh, to go into Iraq. And I partnered with an infantry battalion in downtown Baghdad. And at the time, there were no other U.S. forces in Baghdad proper, uh, aside from those MIT teams helping the Iraqi army uh, secure the area. And my, uh, the rest of my squadron was just outside of Baghdad, working in the rural areas. So that was a great experience, and I, I look back on that as most, the most rewarding time in my career where I had put all the training that I had taken up to that point and put it to use and actually felt like we made an incredible difference during our mission. You tell a wonderful story about a time, a specific incident uh, during that deployment following uh, a roadside bomb attack where several locals were killed and then you and your Iraqi counterparts walked through the market as a show of unity and strength for the people. And then you're intercepted by a, a media crew. Yeah. Um, tell, tell us about that story. Yeah, I mean, you know, the good and bad of war. Uh, we had a vehicle-borne IED that uh, was pulled in and parked in a market that was frequented every day by just throngs of uh, people. You know, that's the one thing when you, you look at the war zone in Iraq, you were in the middle of a populace that was trying to live their life. They were, you know, trying to care for their families, trying to have a job, make some money, put a roof over their head, food on the table. Um, you know, not everybody over there was the enemy. And part of our role was to help protect them so that they could go about their daily lives. Uh, but this vehicle-borne IED uh, detonated there in the market, killing over 300 people. Uh, so we were there for the aftermath of that and a vision that I will never erase from my mind. It was horrific. It was what you would expect to see after a, a bomb like that detonates. Um, so we secured that market. Uh, we put up what we called, you know, the concrete uh, barriers, you know, and literally that's what it was, you know, 10 foot high walls of solid concrete around that and then we would set up security checkpoints. Well, once we got all of that established and we were ready to open the market again, we set up a, a joint patrol with my Iraqi counterparts and my team to march down the center of this market so that people would see that it's safe, it's secure, you can come back out, you can frequent this market. And uh, at the end, you know, there was a lot of media there to publicize this, to let the populace know what was going on. And once we did our walk and patrol down the street, the media met us at the far side and I uh, did an interview for one of the news agencies there. And while I was doing the interview, sitting in the middle of an intersection, this young girl comes up and grabs hold of my arm and uh, kind of took me by surprise. And I looked down and here's this young girl holding on to my arm as I'm giving this interview. So I just continued with the interview, and uh, when it was all said and done, you know, I had my interpreter talk with her, and we found out who she was. And uh, she had actually been, well, she lives in a town that we had actually had several fights in. And it was a, a town that had been overrun and occupied by foreign fighters and by an insurgency. And they had taken over this small town and was operating from within this town. And uh, we had gone through there one day and had gotten ambushed uh, by the insurgents in this town. And uh, another day that I'll never forget, we had air support on our side. And that was one of the main reasons the MIT teams operated like they did. So when there was conflict, we could bring in some of the U.S. assets that the Iraqis didn't have. And one of those was Apache helicopters. 
and uh, we got them on the net, and they were able to identify and, and take out uh, the enemy after that uh, ambush, and turns out ended up killing about 40 of those insurgents. So with that, we had a, a little bit of an advantage, and we started to go in there and actually ran um, some cordon and searches and ran, uh, you know, a clearance operation with the Iraqis, and, you know, it was an Iraqi offensive. And everything you can imagine was getting thrown at us. Everything from, you know, direct fire, um, RPGs, hand grenades, Molotov cocktails, you name it. So a significant fight, but in the end, we were able to clear that town of the insurgency. And then we started, you know, the infrastructure rebuild. And we spent a month getting their electricity back, uh, getting their streets cleaned and trash taken out from in the streets that were just, you know, piles of garbage sitting in the middle of the streets and uh, got their plumbing worked again. And that was, a, that was a challenge because nobody wanted to come in there to do that work because they knew that the insurgency had been there and they knew it was not a safe place. So again, we had to work with them to show them that we were there in solidarity and we were gonna protect them. So my team would literally go there every day and set up a security perimeter for them so that the utility workers who were not fighters they would be safe to come in there and do their utility work. So this little girl, having lived there, appreciated what we had done, had gotten to know us that during that month that we were there and was out and that location recognized me and came over because in her mind we were her friend and, and we had done something significant for her and her town. So that, uh, that's an experience I'll never forget. You're describing the power of relationships. Mm. So as a leader, especially forward deployed with a unit like you had, how do you develop those relationships, both with your own people and then with the people that you're working with in the area? Yeah, just like any relationship, it takes time. Uh, but the more that you put into it, the more you'll get out of it. Um, you know, obviously, my initial introduction to working with an Iraqi unit was, was challenged. Um, this is, you know, a group of individuals that I don't know. Uh, they speak a different language. They have a different culture. They operate differently than our military operates. Um, so it, it took some time to get to know them and to get to know the environment and to become comfortable in what it was that we were doing together. But the more you do that, the more times that we went out on patrol with them and walked the streets with them and did the job with them, they realized that we were part of the team. Uh, the other thing that I think, and, and one of my great takeaways from my time in Iraq, is that the Iraqi people, when, when the Americans first got in there, we were the ugly infidel. And by the time I left, I knew that we had changed the hearts and minds of a number of people in that they realized we weren't there for ourselves. We were there for them. We were there to make their life better, to make their country better, to secure them. And particularly when we would fight alongside of them and they realized that we were willing to sacrifice for them, it went a long way. So I had a lot of opportunity to interact with the civilian populace, with the political leaders, military leaders, police leaders. Um, so it was really a great experience for me and through all of that, just by doing work with them and making things better for them, we became friends, we became partners. And through that, 
you know, it really opened my eyes to the fact that not everybody's the enemy and we really are doing some productive work over here. Uh, there was a period of time where we had to, um, you know, we, we occupied combat outposts, all steer outposts with uh, our counterparts. And at one point that was with the uh, police in Baghdad and we were sharing this combat outpost. And to a degree, you still have that thought in the back of your mind that we could be sleeping with the enemy. So that was always something there, but you, you push past that and you just try to focus on the mission and you, know, you just kind of sleep with one eye open and you, you get to know those people that you're working with and those that you have a gut feeling about. There's probably some reality to that. There's probably a reason that you, you get your spidey senses going up when you're around certain individuals and you just keep an eye on them. As you reflect back on your 2006-7 deployment in, mm -hmm. uh, in Iraq, did you make a difference? Without a doubt. Yeah, I am so proud of what we did over there. Um, like I say, it was the most rewarding time of my career, but it's because we got work done. Uh, I feel like, um, you know, I, I was hit with an IED there, living in that outpost, uh, and it, I was literally 300 meters from the, the gate of that outpost when we were attacked. And it was unusual. I was in the fourth vehicle of that convoy. It was a command-detonated IED, which means they were watching and they hit a trigger. It wasn't a heat sensor or pressure sensor or anything like that. It was somebody watching, knowing where I was and hitting the trigger. Um, so I feel like I made some enemies over there. And in my mind, that's a good thing because I, I was doing probably what needed to be done. One of the outcomes from that incident you're describing was you were awarded the Purple Heart. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, so that IED attack, um, you know, it was, uh, you know, one of the things you dread. Uh, I, I lost uh, my mid-team chief commander, who was the brigade mid-chief at the time, uh, two weeks into the mission to an IED that killed all four people in the vehicle. Um, so, you know, we spent our entire year out on all those same roads, knowing that there are IEDs out there, and yet you just continue the mission. And that's one of the things I take great pride in all of our soldiers, even after we lost soldiers to those attacks. Um, somehow soldiers are able to muster up the courage to put their body armor back on and get out there and continue the mission. And, you know, I take great pride in that. That, that is the American soldier, and it continues to this day. Uh, but my experience was um, one that I remember just in snapshots. And, uh, you know, I, I was obviously had my bell rung pretty good, was in and out of consciousness and didn't realize, couldn't focus on who was around me, thought I was in the hands of the enemy, quite honestly. Um, didn't recognize my battalion commander who was on site with me. And it wasn't until my medic got right in my face to start doing triage on me that I was able to recognize his face and knew that I was okay. Um, my treatment from the time of injury to my evacuation and uh, treatment back here in the States was spectacular. Uh, I was to the cash in downtown Baghdad, you know, within that golden hour very quickly and uh, triaged and taken care of very well there. And I was literally um, from Baghdad to Germany to Brook Army Medical Center at uh, Fort Sam Houston, Texas in three days and uh, was, was just miraculous. Um, and I, talking about miracles, my survival and the survivor of my gunner and my driver, all three of us in the vehicle survived. 
and there's no doubt in my mind that, uh, you know, as a man of faith, that was a hand of God. Uh, I really believe that if you look at the vehicle and you know where I was seated and the, the type of weapon that, that hit us, uh, it's the biggest killer on the battlefield and it, you know, um, in, indiscriminatory. And yet, uh, you know, it's a game of inches. And long story short, my driver and my gunner were tinkering with our vehicles just a week prior to this incident and found a way to drop our seats back just a couple inches to give us a little more comfort with our body armor on and, and everything that we were carrying. Um, so they reclined the seats a little bit. Had they not done that, I can only imagine what the difference would have been. You know, those two inches, um, you know, I can picture myself losing both my arms. I can picture myself um, having a direct impact to my head instead of the glancing and uh, blow that I took. So all of those things, you know, are, are clearly something that in my mind, uh, there, there's a higher being. And uh, I, I never take that for granted. Um, I count my blessings every day, and I, I live every day uh, with the understanding that every day is precious. I, I've heard you speak with the cadets before, and the, even in our conversation here, your faith comes through pretty loud and clear. Yeah. How have, as you reflect back on your time in the Army, integrating faith and profession can be challenging. How, yeah. how, did, how did you do it? How do you advise others to do it? I mean, it's, it's a great question. Uh, I was raised in a Christian home, um, but I wouldn't say that I became a real Christian until, um, gosh, probably when I was 30 years old. And it drastically changed my life. Um, and uh, I would say that before that time, I was a, a soldier who happened to be a Christian. After that time, I was a Christian who happened to be a soldier. Um, so I led completely differently. Uh, it changed who I was drastically uh, as an individual, and uh, I think I led with much more compassion, much more caring, um, and yet much more driven. Uh, I feel like my career after that point was, was more about um, taking advantage of the gifts and talents that I had been given and using, using them for the good of others. and. Uh, so, yeah, my faith is a huge part of who I am. And, you know, I wouldn't change a thing in my life up to that point because that is also who I am and I think is, is a huge part of the things that I've done in my life. Uh, but my faith, I think, has refined who I am. Uh, and I can tell you that going into my deployment to Iraq as a Christian man, had made all the difference in the world. Uh, I went into my deployment with a complete peace and confidence in what it was I was going to be doing and with a uh, recognition of the fact that I was okay no matter what happened. I was okay no matter the outcome. And I mean, everybody, I think, has to come to grips with that. When you go into combat, bottom line is you could lose your life. You could give your life for the mission. And everybody has to come to grips with that before you go. And I think that's, imp that's just imperative. If you're going to be a leader of troops, you've got to be able to lead and, and work in difficult situations. So um, I put all that to the side because I had handled it before we deployed. And for those other Christians listening to this, I would just tell you uh, that when you find yourself in a combat zone, you don't pray in the fight. You pray before the fight. Uh, you prepare yourself for that fight. And, uh, and for me, I went into every battle, kind of like David went into battle. Uh, I went in there knowing that I had God on my side, and uh, I, I just felt 
perfectly calm and at peace with whatever the outcome would be. And that allowed me to focus on the mission and focus on the fight and focus on taking care of my troops uh, without having to worry about myself. You mentioned your family earlier. And how, how have they impacted your career? What role have they played in your career up to, up to this point where we're talking in the 2006-07 time frame? Yeah, gosh. I mean, my family is, is everything to me. Yeah, they, uh, my, my mother and father, my brother, uh, my goodness, my father, I think, instilled in me such a great, um, so many great character traits. Uh, just watching him as a young boy, uh, as he would lead his troops, which were his, his ball players. Um, gosh, I have amazing stories as a young man, uh, you know, and I've, I've shared a lot of these with him that he wasn't even aware of. But uh, one picture that comes to mind right now is when I was on the sideline as a young boy and I was a ball boy for his football team and it was a cold uh, football game and the guys were coming off of the field and we had these huge wool coats that me and my buddy would throw over their shoulder pads while they were on the sideline. And uh, they would sit down, we'd put the coat over their shoulders and they'd take their helmets off and their head was steaming. And boy, me and my buddy, we just got charged up about that. We, and, and in my young mind, I was like, these guys are warriors. You know, look at this, I wanna be like them. So I, I took a lot away from that with my father's uh, coaching experience. I mean, that, that's what a leader does, they're a coach, you know. And I watched my father lead teams at a young age, and, and it stuck with me. And uh, my mother is my biggest cheerleader, you know, and she has always been, you know, she has the fan club for, you know, the Keith Brace fan club. She is the president. And just, you know, one of those moms that is fully supportive of everything I ever wanted to do. Uh, my brother, my only brother, you know, it's my one sibling. Uh, he's also a military uh, veteran. He's a retiree. And, um, you know, he came here to the Citadel two years ahead of me. So there's no doubt in my mind that I came here in large part because my brother charted the path, you know, and he opened up my eyes to what this place was all about. Uh, and, and then I was fortunate enough to find uh, a great wife, uh, a godly wife um, and a loving wife and uh, a great mother and a great friend. And I'll tell you what, as a military spouse, I don't know any better. You know, she has, she has been just a rock for our family and in difficult times. I mean, she, uh, she had to suffer through my injury in Iraq. You know, she got that dreaded notification that no wife ever wants to receive. And, uh, you know, she handled it like a champion. And uh, so all of that, and, and I'm blessed to have two incredible young children and both of them now out of college and on their own. Uh, doing amazing things. And my son is actually a 2019 graduate. He married a 2020 graduate. He is uh, currently in the Army, and he is an infantryman. He's an airborne ranger, and he is in his first assignment at Fort Drum, New York. Uh, so my daughter is in uh, PA school down in Savannah. She graduated from Clemson and is, is now pursuing a physician's assistance degree and just doing an incredible job both, you know, both married and on their own and doing great. And as a parent, that's, that's you know, more than you can ask for. Uh, but I look at my children and the sacrifice that they made. And, you know, there are a lot of military brats out there who can appreciate the life of a military brat and the moving around that you do and the sacrifice that you make 
in support of, you know, your family member that's out there serving. Uh, so, so I love them to death for, for, you know, hanging on with me during a very challenging 20 year career in the army. Um, and now I do the best I can to give back to them because they have certainly supported me. Uh, so I do all I can to support them. So the Citadel has become a family affair for the Brace family. It has. Yes, it has. So as your military career in the Army came to a closure, you came back to your alma mater. And you serve as a TAC officer, standing Mm -hmm. for teach, advise, and coach, taking that that passion you you learned from your father about coaching and instilling it into the cadets today. Our mission at the college, of course, is to educate and develop principal leaders in all walks of life. And as a battalion tack, you play a critical part in that equation. Mm-hmm. Describe your job as a tack officer. Yeah, I I look at it. You know, I remember as a cadet having those retirees and the, those examples that we had here on campus. That as a young man, we looked up to. And we said, that's what I want to be. That's who I want to be like. And um, so every day, the one thing I try to do here on campus is to model what right looks like as a professional military officer, as a citadel man, as a husband, as a father, as a citizen. Um, I want I want them to have an example that uh, that they can model after. And I'm by no means perfect, but, you know, I, I feel like I've been successful and I try hard to, to be a good person in everything that we do. And I'm not just doing that to make myself look good. I'm doing that to make my family look good. I'm doing it to make this school look good. I'm doing it to make the army look good. I'm doing it to make our country look good because all of that is a part of who I am. That's been my life. Um, so obviously it's, it's affected who I am as a person. Um, so it's easy for me, I feel like, every day. I don't have to think about what I'm going to do or how I'm going to act. It's just who I am. Uh, we talk about building principled leaders here on campus, and you do that through repetition. And we teach that a lot here. We teach a lot of leadership and ethics. And to the cadets at the time, I'm sure it feels... Uh, very repetitive and, uh, you know, unnecessary at times. But I think when they get out of here, be it five, ten years down the road, they'll have an appreciation for that, you know. And and as I matured, I know I had a better appreciation for what I learned here at the Citadel. It's kind of like as a parent, uh, I appreciate my parents more now as a parent myself for what they did for me as a young man. Um, So I try to do that for every one of my cadets. I hope that somewhere down the line they'll be in a situation and they'll look back on their experience here at the Citadel and be able to tap into something as a way to handle whatever it is they're facing and uh, to know that um, they have a reach back. You know, they can reach back here to the Citadel. They can reach back to their classmates. They can reach back to the friends that they've made. Um, to their family, whatever the case might be, reach back to the faith that they started to form here as a young cadet. I think all of that is important, and that's kind of what drives what I do on the day-to-day. But what that looks like to someone outside the campus is, you know, we're, we're here with the cadets all the time. 
we live in the barracks with them, not overnight, but our offices is in the barracks with them. We're at the formations with them. We're at the events that they're doing, like the practice parades, the parades, the, the classroom training that we do, uh, the SMIs, the morning inspections. They see us around, and it's not so much the act of us going around and, and enforcing standards, because ideally that's cadet leaders who are doing those things. But as a leader, I can't walk by a deficiency and not point it out. So, you know, you do a lot of that, what we call the on-the-spot corrections, you know, and you call them when they're not, call them out when they're not meeting the standard. Um, and it's just that constant reminder. And just so, so what I hope to instill in them is that muscle memory, that repetitiveness, that, you know, the simple things. Like every day that you wake up, put your feet on the floor, you get up, you brush your teeth, you shave your face. To this day, that's the first thing I do every morning, you know, and that seems simple, but it's, it's a great example of how you build those habits. So then when you build a habit of making a good ethical decision or making a decision to take care of somebody um, rather than take care of yourself, the more you exercise that muscle, the more it is going to become second nature for you. And if you practice that every day of your life in whatever role it is you find yourself, you're going to solidify that as who you are. And at this point in my life, I feel like it's solid. You know, um, do I make mistakes? Sure. But they're few and far between. It's, it's more of me just living the day to day the way I know how in a manner that I feel is effective and something that I can be proud of. So, um, that, that's a long answer to what you're getting at, but that's what I would hope to instill by being a TAC officer here, is helping these cadets prepare for a successful future. As we, as we work with the cadets, we focus on four primary areas. We call them pillars in our model, uh, character, academics, military, and fitness. So inside the character pillar, and it's character and ethics is what we're talking about, is of course where our honor code lives. Um, Frequently, we encounter ethical dilemmas in our lives, and the, the cadets certainly do in the barracks. An ethical dilemma would be defined as right, two right answers. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, upholding the rules and upholding loyalty, say, to a classmate. Yeah. So uh, how do you advise the cadets to handle those ethical dilemmas that they encounter in life? Uh, let's just use that example, the, yeah. upholding the rules and, and maintaining loyalty with their friends. Yeah. I think that's, um, I deal with that every day. Uh, and with our cadet leaders in particular. Um, and a lot of times, you know, this is a peer on peer leadership environment here and peer leadership is the toughest leadership because they are friends as well as in cadet world subordinate. Uh, there is a commander. Uh, there are a set of standards that they have to operate under. And so what I try to tell them and what I try to explain to them is that they've got to be able to separate the personal from the professional. And I remember from my time being here, even as a cadet leader, that I had a, a mentor, don't know if it was a TAC or just an instructor, that told me that, you know, if, if you've got a friend who's putting you in a situation to force you to make a decision of what to do, they're probably not much of a friend. And for them to question whether or not you have to follow through with discipline because of something they did, not because something you did, um, then they're probably not much of a friend. 
So if you can separate the personal from the professional, and even if you are friends, say, hey, look, man, you know I've got to do this, but you've earned this one. So deal with it and, you know, let's move on. Uh, But there are also those little things, those things that aren't, you know, one of those things that's going to get somebody on the quad walking tours. There's an opportunity for people to put some money in the bank as leaders as well as subordinates. Um, So you may say, all right, look, I'm going to give you a break this time because you've got some money in the bank, but don't let it happen again. Or some kind of three strikes rule for those less than significant things. One of my lessons to our cadet leaders is that there should be an escalation of force. We know escalation of force in the military. uh, So I equate that to an escalation of force here on campus that, you know, you give a warning. You give a second warning, you fire a warning shot, and then you give some punishment. You put some teeth behind um, the consequence. And so if you build that up, then by the time it comes to them actually serving some punishments, and look, I give you plenty of opportunity, and you clearly don't care enough about me to get on board, so here you go. Here's your prize. <laughs> you know, and that's that's tough leadership. Right. But... Um, I also make sure that they understand that as a leader, you have to care for your troops. And a lot of times caring for them is holding them accountable so that they can write a deficiency, can meet a standard, uh, so that then you can worry about something else. And a lot of times, you know, you meet that minimum standard, that's all I need from you. You know, if you don't want to be more than that, I'm okay with that, but you have to be at least this standard. Um, So... I think that's, if we could get everybody to that, I think we'd be a pretty good institution. Uh, but there's always going to be those that, that struggle. And I think that's the leadership opportunity for our cadets, that they can continue to work with those individuals. And, you know, it brings, me, brings to mind a, a soldier I had that couldn't qualify with an M16 or an M4 rifle. And we worked over and over with him, and he just couldn't get it. He didn't have the coordination, the hand-eye coordination, whatever that might be. He could not shoot a rifle. So we moved on to the next option. We gave him an area weapon. <laughs> we gave him, a, gave him a squad automatic rifle or a machine gun so he could just, you know, get close to the target and be effective. Uh, so to a degree, that's what we have to do here with our cadets. You know, there are some that, that may just miss the mark. Ideally, every day, everyone gets a little bit better. And if we're getting progressively better throughout the year and you're trying uh, you know, another one of my sayings is you don't have to be the best, but you have to give me your best. When, when you see that, that, that's all you would ask for. That's all you would hope for. And, uh, you know, that, that let, you know, that, that bottom military achiever might be our top academic achiever. You know, he might just have different priorities. So all of that is a part of the puzzle here at the Citadel. And that's what our leaders get to work with. And I think it's very effective. You mentioned that mentors have helped you in the past and a key part of your role and what you've been describing is involves mentoring so as you look at your experience here with the cadets over the years what are the keys to good mentoring Mm. you know one of the most important things and as tax we talk about this often is you have to be approachable your cadets have got to feel comfortable coming and talking to you not just about business but about personal issues. And it's, I think, a challenge for tax is to not put a wall up 
between the tax and their cadets. Uh, we are here for them, and if there's a wall up and they can't get to us, then we have no job. We, we basically make ourselves ineffective at what it is we've been hired to do. Um, so mentorship is availability and uh, the willingness to share and the willingness to listen. And I think that goes a long way. Um, I've said before that I look at my cadets as, as my kids, and I really do. And uh, in the same way I raised my children, you know, I, I take that same approach with my cadets. You know, where, there is a, a vision I have for them that is bigger than where they are right now. And I'm just trying to help get them to what I see as their potential. Uh, so, so I want them to feel like I'm approachable, um, but I'm also going to hold them accountable. Uh, I'm also going to enforce standards. I'm also going to push them and challenge them and try to push them beyond what they think they're capable of. Um, sometimes get them out of their comfort zone, but doing that in a manner that is uh, encouraging and productive. Uh, I, want, I want them to be able to talk to me about what's going on. Just like my own kids, I, I always would be open to them telling me anything. Share with me anything. Um, so that we can address it, we can fix it, and we can get beyond it. So uh, I would hope that my cadets would see me as a mentor. I would hope that they would feel comfortable coming to talk to me about any issue, not just cadet issues, not just academic issues, but personal issues. And I can tell you over the years I have. I've had several cadets come to me with, with very personal issues and light, huge life decisions. And those are the things that I will walk away here with pride in. You know, the, teaching them the military aspect of the school is pretty easy. Teaching somebody how to navigate life is difficult. As a battalion TAC, you also lead company TACs and a TAC NCO. So as you select your battalion or your company TACs, what are you looking for? Uh, I'm looking for a passion. I'm looking for those that have a heart for what it is we do. Uh, and then also, obviously, we're looking for experience. You know, as I look at a company TAC job, this is somebody who's going to be supervising a company commander. So ideally, it's someone who's been a company commander. You know, it's somebody who's dealt with every challenge that you face when you're sitting in the seat of company command. And that's not just our tactical and military aspect of the job. I can remember as a company commander, you wear a lot of hats. You know, you're a, you're a military leader, you're a trainer, you're a coach, but you're also a marriage counselor. You're a... Uh, you're a, a child counselor, you know, you're, you're a financial counselor, you, you do it all. You're a legal counselor, you wear a lot of different hats. And so, you know, having some life experience in that is helpful as well as a TAC officer. You want to be able to talk to them in a way that, that you've experienced before, that you've got some sort of experience that you can reach back on and share with them. And uh, I think that goes a long way in your approach with, in dealing with our cadets, uh, because as a platoon leader, with, with a 32-man platoon, you're going to have those 18-year-old privates who are fresh out of the house, just like some of our knobs that show up here. They don't have that life experience. They don't have the same skill set that you might have at that point. As a company commander, certainly. Uh, you now, you know, as a company commander, you've got six years in, and uh, you most have a family at least started at that point, so you can relate on a broader scale. So I think that's what we're looking for. Uh, but for this job, you, you've got to have a heart for it. You've got to have a passion for it. Um, you do this not for the monetary rewards. You do it for those 
other rewards that you get out of it. And I think one of the greatest rewards is when I have alumni come back five years removed from the institution and, uh, you know, successfully into their careers and they have a better appreciation for their four years here at the school. And that's great to see. Uh, and just to see them, you know, a lot of times toting their, their kids on campus, you know, and, and just knowing that they are successfully grounded in their life. Uh, that, that's a huge reward. The TAC NCOs, TAC non-commissioned officers, are a relatively new mm. position at the college. Um, describe that for us. Yeah, that is a great change that we made just a few years ago, and uh, it's paying huge dividends. A lot of what we do as cadet leaders is NCO business, and we were very void of NCO influence here on campus. So we now have a battalion TAC NCO in each battalion, and they take care of that NCO business. They have a better um, foundation and experience level on dealing with that squad leader. You know, they have been that squad leader. Uh, they understand about the level of detail that goes into working with a nine-man squad. So they work um, at a much different level. They understand the officer-NCO relationship, uh, but in the military, the NCO was the backbone of our military. So a lot of times we were lacking as, as officers the, the proper instruction to give to that corporal to that squad leader, to that platoon sergeant, to that first sergeant, to that sergeant major, that these retired first sergeants and sergeant majors are able to do in a heartbeat. And that is, that is who they are uh, based on their experience and expertise. So I think our cadets are, are now becoming much more well-rounded with the addition of our NCOs. And I think that we, we have some incredible NCOs working for us. So the TACs and the TAC NCOs became critical in team building and teaching the cadets how to build teams, which are so effective. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they see me as a battalion TAC. You know, I, I do what they should be doing. I counsel my company TACs every year. I evaluate their performance every year. Uh, they see us moving together as a team. They see that we're having our weekly meetings and we have, you know, we're all operating on the same message with the same vision, moving in the same direction. Um, they see that as a battalion TAC, I set the, the vision for the battalion on how we're going to operate as a TAC team. And uh, I think they see the influence of that. So I, I think we're showing them and modeling for them what a, a team of professional officers and NCOs should look like. And that, that's our goal. As you guide the cadet commanders, the cadet battalion commander, company commanders, how do you advise them to build their teams? Yeah, it's uh, first and foremost, they got to get to know who is on their team. Um, you know, they don't get to select their leadership all the time. Uh, we've got company commanders and first sergeant, sergeant majors that have been selected for this coming year who have already now had the opportunity to come and interact with the people they'll be leading next year. They've had the opportunity to do a handoff with the outgoing commander and outgoing first sergeant to learn a little bit about the company culture and their, their leaders that they're going to be working with. Uh, so that's critical. And it gives them an opportunity to come into a new environment and take on a new mission with a new group of individuals and figure out how they're going to be effective in that. 
develop what their goals and objectives are going to be for the year. What's their leadership style going to look like and how's that going to fit into this environment? And then listening to their subordinates. You know, they now know who they are, getting some feedback from them on what they hope to get out of the next year and how they would hope to see that leader operate. And, you know, that allows that leader to take that information, sort through it, see what he wants to hang on to and what he wants to dump. And uh, it's a great opportunity for him to allow his subordinate leaders to have some buy-in in what the unit is doing. Um, so it, it's been really good. And to counsel those incoming commanders and incoming junior leaders is another fun part of the job because they're hungry. You know, they, they competed for those positions. They want to test their leadership. They want to stretch themselves. They want that additional level of development. Um, so the company and battalion set gives them the opportunity to do that, but they, they learn very quickly that they've got to be very cautious about how they do it. They have to be thoughtful in how they do it. Um, it has to make sense, not just to them, but to the group at large. So, uh, yeah, I think they learned some negotiation skills through that process. One of the <clears throat> one of the unique aspects of a military college is that, of course, there's the the rank hierarchy, but then there's also a class hierarchy. Yeah. So, and inevitably, you have seniors who don't hold cadet rank. Mm -hmm. So you have senior privates. But yet, we're still training them to be good leaders. Absolutely. What makes a good leader of a senior private? All right, so a senior private as a leader. So when, when you look at a senior private, uh, clearly they have leadership skills. You don't go through four years of this institution without having some leadership skills, even if you don't have rank on your collar. A lot of our senior privates had served as corporals or sergeants previous years. Um, so obviously you're looking for that senior private uh, to one, be able to lead themselves. If nothing else, they're taking care of themselves. They're meeting those minimum standards that they know they have to meet. Uh, they, they're a good example to everybody in the company or in the battalion simply by how they carry themselves and uh, how they act, what they do, um, how they talk to others, how they treat others. So all of that is an example of leadership, even though they don't have rank on their collar. So, uh, but it can also go the other way. Uh, you can be that senior private who doesn't care much about the military aspect of the school, who doesn't carry themselves well, doesn't look the part of just a, a cadet private. You know, they don't wear the uniform well. They don't take personal pride in making sure that they look sharp and represent uh, a good military appearance. And that has a negative connotation with that. Um, they, they show up late to formation. Um, they don't show up to formation at all. Those kind of things, everybody's watching. Everybody sees everybody. It's like a small town where everybody knows what everybody else is doing. Um, so they're, you know, that, it's visible. And I, I think the good senior private is the one that has personal pride. Uh, not just personal pride, but pride in their company and pride in the school. And they want to represent it well. And believe it or not, I think that carries over. Uh, it'll carry over into their career, whether that's in the military or in the civilian sector. If, if you don't have personal pride in your uniform, you're not going to have personal pride in your business suit. You're not going to have personal pride in whatever your duty uniform is and whatever job you're doing. Um, but that good senior private knows that he's building those skills. He's creating those habits that are going to make him successful outside of the campus. So, um, 
But there's also senior privates, like I said before, who may not just be leaders in the military aspect of the school, but they're leaders in their academic arena or they're leaders in the ROTC department. Uh, there's so many different leadership opportunities here on campus, and they model that. They demonstrate that they've got the ability to lead in the engineering department, president of the engineering club, uh, or president of the, um, or, or member of the honor committee, you know, those kind of things. Uh, all of that is leadership. So this place provides ample opportunity, not just as a core cadet leader, but leaders in a number of different arenas here on campus. Athletes as well. You know, we've got cadet privates who are athletes who are certainly leaders on the athletic field. Keith, it's been a, it's a, been a fascinating conversation and, and delightful talking to you about your experience. 20 years in the Army, 10 years as a, as a uh, TAC officer at the Citadel. If you had the chance, to give some advice to Second Lieutenant Keith Brace in 1991, what would it be? Second Lieutenant Keith Brace, I would tell him to focus on his NCOs, learn everything you can from them, do more than is expected of you, uh, take on the hard jobs, do those jobs that nobody else wants to do, and have fun. You know, the, the career I had was an absolute joy, every different aspect of it. Um, so enjoy what it is you're doing. And if you don't enjoy it, find something that you do. Uh, I, I think it's real important that you go to work every day happy with what it is you're doing because every leader is going to influence those around them. And if you're unhappy, your troops are unhappy. If you don't enjoy what it is you're doing, your troops won't enjoy it. But if you show the motivation and enthusiasm that it takes to lead and do the difficult things and to get them done and, and have fun while you're doing it, then uh, you're going to be a positive influence and you're going to be a great leader. All right. Well, thanks very much for your time today. Appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Leadership On Demand podcast presented by the Krauss Center for Leadership and Ethics at the Citadel. You can find us online, and we welcome your feedback and suggestions on who you, our audience, would like to hear from in future episodes. Thank you for your time today. We hope you'll join us here again soon for another episode of Leadership on Demand.